Trigger warning, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of violent crimes and may be distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and happy Valentine's Day. In today's episode, we're doing something a little bit different. I've come across some unconventional Valentine's Day related murders, so I decided to compile them into a single episode. Apparently, it's not all chocolates and flowers on this day for lovers. So with that, our Valentine's Day trilogy begins across the pond in the village of Barrow in Somerset, England. On the night before Valentine's Day 2021, what was intended to be a joyous celebration of Penny Jackson's 66th birthday took an unexpectedly dark turn. Despite it being Saturday, Penny's family opted for a video gathering due to the unique circumstances of the COVID pandemic. The virtual celebration included a meal prepared by Penny featuring filet steaks and a side dish of bubble and squeak. However, the evening took a harrowing turn when David, Penny's husband, expressed dissatisfaction during the birthday meal. The source of this discord centered around Penny's choice of including bubble and squeak with the gourmet steaks that David's adopted daughter Isabel had thoughtfully sent for the celebration. It seems that David didn't think that Bubble and Squeak was posh enough to accompany the main course. Shortly after concluding the birthday video call, Penny sent an unsettling text message to her daughter. The message read, If all goes tits, you have this message. I love you to the ends of the earth. Concerned, the daughter immediately called to check on her mother's well-being and she was reassured that everything was okay. However, as the evening unfolded, a chilling turn of events took place. It starts with Penny's call to 999. All right, madam, how many times have you stabbed him? Um, I did the once. You did the once? And then he said I wouldn't do it again, so I did it twice more. So, okay. So in total, how many times? Uh, three times. Three times, okay. Uh, once I thought I'd get his heart, well, he hasn't got one. And then, twice in the abdomen. Penny, only mildly overwhelmed by emotions and, as she claimed, initially considering self-defense, took a kitchen knife to her bedroom. She later revealed that she contemplated using it to end her own life. In a moment of apparent frustration, she confronted her husband, seeking acknowledgement and an apology. She received neither, but it did not end there. And are you with him now? Well, I might just go and stab him again, but... All right, do not stab him again. Why? Following this escalation, Jackson admitted on police body cam footage that she was guilty of the apparent murder. She claimed that her husband's taunts pushed her over the edge, stating that he had goaded her on, even telling her that she hadn't even been able to do the stabbing right. This alleged provocation led her to stab him two more times while she was on the phone with emergency services. In a distressing twist, even when a paramedic instructed her to assist her injured husband, she refused. Madam, I'm listening to your voice and you're the help I have available, so we need to help him, okay? No, I'm not. In the aftermath of the shocking events, Penny detailed decades of verbal and physical abuse she claimed to have endured at the hands of David. In her testimony, she portrayed him as a relentless bully who had pushed her to the brink, justifying her actions as a desperate response to years of torment. 
In the courtroom, Jackson recounted, I wanted him to say, I am sorry, Pin. He didn't. He just said, for God's sake, you are pathetic. This particular moment proved to be the breaking point for her as she explained to the jurors that she felt she couldn't bear the situation any longer, losing control in the process. Well, I'm in the lounge even the police expressed disbelief at the unprecedented nature of the case, highlighting Penny's apparent lack of contrition or remorse. This was never more obvious than on the body cam footage from that evening. Hey, madam, do you need to step outside for me a minute? Can you, can you come outside? Yes. Thank you. He's on the kitchen floor. Okay, at this moment in time, okay, if you just listen to my colleague, um, under arrest suspicion of attempt murder, mate. Under arrest suspicion of attempt murder. And you do not have to say anything. It may harm your defence. You do not mention when questioned anything you're later relying on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. Um, I'll go in and see what they do. Yeah. Could I get my coat? Just bear with me two seconds. In there. Right. I admit it all. All right. Just get them. All right. I want to go in. All right. No, he's on the kitchen floor. Can someone just stay with Devon while I go in? There's nothing nasty. And I'm certainly not. not my coat's in the... Yeah, just Ow, wait two seconds. Hot. All right, you okay? You all right? If there's any luck, you'll be too late. All right. What's your name, Anna? Uh, well, I'm called Penny, but Penelope Jackson. Can I get my coat? We'll get you right, get the ambulance in, pronto. We need oh, CPR. Oh, um, no, 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 please don't. Yeah, we need oh, the ambulance. Should have stabbed him a bit more. Can we meet, mate? Yes. Yes. I stabbed him. Because he's an aggressive bully and you wouldn't do it. I did it twice more. Coats in. What colour is your coat? In the front. Yeah. Okay. It might be a while, all right. But I'll try and get. There's obviously a lot going on. Okay. Penelope, my advices don't don't talk about it now. Okay. No, no. I have no no intention of not agreeing to what I've done. Okay. I know what I've done. All right. And I know why I've done it. And if I haven't done it properly, I'm really annoyed. Oh. All right, Penny. Um, I'm arresting, further arresting you for murder. Oh, um, good. I've already cautioned you. So your necessities for your arrest is for a prompt and effective investigation. Yeah. And stop further harm. Sorry. That one's a bit tight. So, Penny, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna move them we'll to the rear in a minute. minute. The, side, the um, DO's just come out to um, check your temperature and then we'll, we'll move you in and then Mind we'll get no. Just stay there for the time being. Right. I'm going to buy my slippers. All right. I'm not Jotting her out? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Step out. Mind your head. Yeah. Oh, I'm very sorry for being a nuisance. No, we've just got to take your temperature, okay? Yeah. Oh, that would be just really great, get COVID on the top of this.
Penny was more concerned about her coat, her slippers, and the possibility that she had botched the stabbing and somehow not killed her husband. Later in court, Penny changed her tune a bit and continued to claim manslaughter due to abuse. Despite her plea, the jury rendered a resounding judgment. Penny Jackson was guilty of cold-blooded murder. And now onto the notes for this case. First of all, this was a relatively open and shut case. Uh, she admitted what she had done. It was simply a matter of proving whether or not it was in cold blood or some version of self-defense. Also some housekeeping. Barrow, where this happened, is a small coastal town. It's basically mid to upper class communities that surround the area. So it's not a stretch to say that this type of thing is unusual for that part of England. Also, the one thing you may be asking is what the hell is bubble and squeak? Well, Bubble and Squeak actually dates back to the 18th century. Uh, it's English, and it's probably most famous for being made out of leftovers. It started out with cooked beef as an ingredient, but during the rationing of the Second World War, it became more common to just have mashed potatoes and vegetables, uh, no meat. Typically, it's made from potatoes and cabbage, but almost always from leftovers. Extra things maybe are added in. It's, it's kind of a whole hodgepodge casserole of things that are made after the fact. This is apparently why the dish seemed inappropriate for the celebration meal and the nice steaks that the couple were having. Which brings me to the strange irony that the husband was upset about the side dish at his wife's celebration meal, even though she made that choice for herself. So that's weird. Aside from the obvious callousness, of Penny's comments on body cam and the 999 call, there is what I would consider like an unusual number of deaths surrounding her. There are interviews where relatives suggest that Penny drove one of her ex-husbands to suicide because she was cheating on him with the now murdered David Jackson. She had multiple ex-husbands. One relative actually suggested that she had effectively disposed of them all. There was also a situation where apparently David Jackson's son had committed suicide as well. So just a whole bunch of death within a single degree of Penny. Penny's pattern of moving through husbands also seems to fly in the face of the defense that she put forth. According to her, she had faced significant abuse over the years from David Jackson, which seems odd considering that she had left all of her previous husbands in relatively short order. And at least in her previous marriage, she was the one that was cheating. So it just, it doesn't seem to make sense that she was powerless when in every other scenario, it seems as though she had all of the power. The jury seemed to agree that her battered woman explanation was highly unlikely. And Penny will likely die in jail. She has a minimum sentence of 18 years. And now to North Carolina. I've never had a case quite like this one. In 1971, a grim and unsolved mystery unfolded in Durham, North Carolina, as a young couple faced a horrifying fate in the days surrounding Valentine's Day. Jesse McBain, a 19-year-old North Carolina State student known for his athleticism and intelligence, and Patricia Mann, his 20-year-old fiance and an aspiring nurse, had their lives cut short in a case that continues to baffle authorities to this day. On February 12, 1971, Jesse and Patricia attended the Valentine's Day dance at Watts Hospital in Durham. Later in the evening, the couple found a secluded area on Wayside Place and parked. Apparently trying to steal some alone time, they would come to realize they were anything but alone. 
the following day, a friend discovered McBain's car. According to newspaper reports, the car was locked and had been wiped to fingerprints. Their bodies discovered two weeks later, several miles away. They were found in a dense and secluded area in what is now part of Duke Forest. They were found by a surveyor that was doing some work in a wooded area. It looks like they were strangled and then let down, strangled and let down over a period of time. Authorities say the couple was also stabbed several times. The evidence of torture was undeniable. There was a trench of mud and footprints around the tree suggesting that they had been struggling to keep their footing while being strangled. So a certain degree of planning, absolutely, absolutely. The crime exhibited a level of sadistic coordination that led investigators to suspect that the perpetrator had a connection to the victims, though the extent of that connection remains uncertain. Several law enforcement agencies worked the case over the years, but no arrest was made. The case remains unsolved. In 2011, a discarded box of evidence was found and the case was reopened. Importantly, the case became the focus of a podcast with police sharing their files with writer and filmmaker Eric Pruitt and journalist Drew Adamack. After a year and a half of investigation, they identified a potential suspect, which immediately brings us to the notes. So apparently a doctor who worked at Watts Hospital during the time of the murders and is still alive is the possible suspect. I could not find a name, but the person is one of the subjects police originally considered. In an attempt to bring closure to the case, authorities visited the possible suspect and requested his DNA for testing. However, that individual, now a doctor, refused to cooperate. So if you put two and two together, it seems apparent that the police, after about 50 years, were able to extract some DNA evidence from the ropes that were used to bind the young lovers together. They suggested as much in an interview in 2023. Being that the individual in question is a doctor, if he is guilty, he's probably educated enough to know that his DNA may have been found, hence the refusal to cooperate. So that kind of brings me to the things that stand out about this case the most. Uh, first, I mean, it is unsolved. It's many, many, many years ago. Uh, the truth is that whoever did this was quite comfortable while committing these atrocities, it takes time to do what they did. The cause of death was strangulation, but this wasn't one continuous tightening of a rope around the neck in an attempt to immediately kill them. This wasn't, you know, anybody being hanged. Instead, it appears that the rope was tightened and then loosened again so that they could regain their breath and consciousness. And then they were strangled again. Uh, it appears that this was repeated several times until the couple expired. Again, this took time. The postmortem even suggested that some puncture wounds may have occurred after death, indicating that the perpetrator may have returned to the scene of the crime. Perhaps this was just the perpetrator ensuring that the couple had actually died. And finally, even though we don't have a conviction, it does appear that investigators are confident that it is the doctor. For the families of the victims, justice may never be served, and that is unfortunate. As is the case with many of these stories, time begins to erode the evidence. Potential witnesses get older, their memories fade, evidence gets lost, and suspects pass away. At the time of this story, this case is 53 years old. And assuming the suspect was one of the victim's peers, 
or anywhere in the neighborhood of their age, they would be at least 70 years or older at this point in time. The odds of a conviction become bleaker every day. And now to the mountains of West Virginia, which should foreshadow what you're about to hear. On September 24th, 2019, we were advised of this crime by Larry Paul McClure. Larry Paul McClure, a registered sex offender, turned himself in for violating the sex offender registry by failing to notify state police of a new address in Kentucky. But while questioning McClure, state police discovered shocking information that was well beyond a failure to notify police of an address change. Moving on, troopers identified the remains found in McDowell County last week. Troopers tell us the victim is John Thomas McGuire of Minnesota. His remains were found on September 26th in the Sky Gusty area. Three people were arrested in connection to this case. McClure, during the questioning, confessed to a murder that had occurred seven months prior on Valentine's Day 2019. While in custody, McClure sent a letter to court officials on November 4th saying he helped kill McGuire, who was his daughter's boyfriend. The letter goes into detail about how McGuire was hit in the head, injected with methamphetamine, and strangled. Authorities learned McClure and his biological daughter Amanda had an incestual relationship and were married in Tazewell County one month after the alleged murder. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Apparently, Larry had recently been released from jail, came home to his daughter slash girlfriend, and he was extremely jealous and, as she described, protective of her. Being that Larry was a sex offender, it comes as little surprise that he was in a relationship with his daughter, albeit still quite creepy. At some point, it was decided that the boyfriend, McGuire, would be killed. Responding to the crime scene in September after the initial confession, reporters observed what appeared to be a shallow grave on the property. Here at the scene, we discovered a path leading to some disturbed ground that looks a lot like a shallow grave. This is where McGuire's body was found. We did respond to the, uh, to the residence where the crime occurred and uh, the victim's remains were found on the property. The following month, troopers arrested Larry Paul McClure and his daughters, Amanda Naylor McClure and Anna Chaudhry on various charges. Murder, uh, first degree, uh, conspiracy, and concealment of a deceased human body. And again, we move quickly to the notes in this twisted case. First, the sentences. Larry got life with no mercy. Amanda got 40, but will probably only do 20 and Anna also received 40, but will also probably only do half. It appears that Larry ended up taking the blame for most of the torture and murder of McGuire. This is why the daughters will likely make it out of jail. For some crazy reason, Larry actually wrote a letter plainly confessing to the murder and what he suggested was an attempt to keep the taxpayers' money from being spent on his trial. That being said, he did state at some point that his daughter had a contract out on John McGuire's life. It also came out in his testimony that every last one of them was involved in drugs and in the days before the murder, Larry McClure drove to Indiana with Anna to pick up Amanda and John who were apparently dope sick. They then returned to Sky Gusty where everything was okay for the first 10 days. But on Thursday morning, Larry and Anna were sitting on the porch and Amanda came out and said she wanted to kill John. 
She said she needed things like rope and other items to dispose of the body. There's a good chance that this was in the middle of a meth bender because the family had apparently recently gone to Virginia to purchase items to cook up meth in their kitchen. Subsequent testimony also revealed that Anna had a previous relationship with McGuire that her sister, Amanda, was unaware of and that John, in an affair with Anna, apparently produced a child. Now, this is according to Larry McClure, and he said it seems that Anna told Amanda about the child, and now both daughters wanted McGuire dead. As it turns out, John had purchased a bottle of wine for Valentine's Day, and this bottle was the one that McGuire was struck in the head with. He was then tied up, injected with homemade liquid meth, and later strangled. Larry McClure stated that Anna strangled him while he held him down. McClure also said that the torture began on Valentine's Day and lasted through Saturday, commenting that it was two to three days of hell. And later that morning, we buried him in a two-foot grave behind the house. Then, six days later, they dug him up, cut him into pieces, and reburied him with lime. So with those details out of the way, what stands out the most, I guess that would be the reality that they may have gotten away with it had Larry not opened his mouth. Living in the middle of nowhere as they did, I imagine it's easy to misplace a human, especially one that is a drifter. And that is probably more of a testament to the wild, wild west of West Virginia. But the truth is that they had gotten away with it thus far, and Larry deciding to be Honest Abe while checking in as a sex offender was really what derailed everything. It's hard to imagine what caused him to confess, but it doesn't seem that the police had anything until he opened his mouth. Which brings me to part two of all of this, which is just the West Virginia of all of it. I mean, incest, one man dating two sisters, sex offenders, murder, etc., etc. It's so stereotypical that you could write the story without the details. I mean, how West Virginia is it to be married to your father and to kill you and your sister's mutual boyfriend slash baby daddy, all with homemade meth and wine bottles? It's like a Mad Libs for hillbillies. I mean, seriously, she came out of the house one morning ready to kill a man but acted like it was a common household chore. Like it was, you know, let's go get some cereal, maybe some milk, a little rope and lime while we're there. Because, you know, don't we all do it that way? And with that, stay safe, stay the hell out of West Virginia, and stay tuned for the next episode.